and welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I'm Joe Wolfond, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Joseph Cacharo. Talk to me, Cash. I feel like we've got less to talk about from a news perspective this week. Like, I, you know, we've got a topic that's going to carry us, knowing us, probably for 80 to 90 minutes. Um, but I feel like this is the first episode in a while where we don't have like five news items to hit off the top to sidetrack us before we get into that 80 minute conversation. Yeah, I think we honestly should just jump right in before we get sidetracked. I know we talked off air a little bit just about the Mitchell Robinson news, which is pretty devastating for the Knicks, honestly, given how well he was playing and how crucial he is to their identity and their style of play. Uh, And then the other thing that I thought was just super interesting was obviously the Zion contract stuff breaking about how because he failed to meet this minimum games played threshold there was a trigger in his contract that essentially unguaranteed the last three years of his deal with the pelicans and i remember talking at the time about how like it was the same thing with the Embiid extension with philly right there were almost certainly going to be some injury protections in that deal and i guess i don't know has it been confirmed that it's like fully non-guaranteed is there a partial guarantee in those last three years because like three years fully non-guaranteed on what was a max contract feels basically unprecedented to me at least in this era of the NBA yeah but for an unprecedented player right when it comes to both talent and injury history mm-hmm. there's also that clause in there that I didn't know. like I remember uh at the time when the extension was agreed to it had been reported about some of like the weight related clauses in there too but I don't remember anyone reporting it in specific detail the way it was this week when Shams reported that uh, I believe one of the clauses is that his weight plus body fat percentage has to be 295 or less, which I think is like an uh, interesting formula where you combine a guy's weight and body fat percentage. Yeah, who who devised that formula? I don't like, know. Uh, yeah, just really interesting and like we're saying, maybe unprecedented contract language and stipulations, so... I don't think, unless it's something like genuinely career-threatening, it's almost impossible for me to imagine a situation where they just straight up void his contract, like waive him. That's, I think ultimately he's going to wind up getting the money. It's just crazy that it was that extreme in terms of the injury protections in that deal. But what we wanted to talk about today, we're a third of the way into the season, basically. Uh, I think most teams have played around 27 games. And that feels like a pretty good barometer to me. I think actually, you know, the data in the past has suggested that the 20 game mark is something of a stabilization point where there's a strong correlation between what the standings look like after 20 games and what they look like at the end of the season. But a third of the way through the year, the Christmas Day slate is upcoming. We've passed the December 15th marker where players signed in the offseason are now eligible to be traded we're going to be at least i am i don't know about you actually i'm going to be taking next week off so yeah we will this is is our last episode until the new year so to me that felt like a good time to take stock of the league landscape and specifically to look at who we feel like are actually championship contenders at this stage because it's kind of a word or a definition that we throw around maybe too liberally sometimes but like i thought it would be a good time to investigate that and actually think about 
who we feel like has a real chance to win the championship this year. So I may I, I whittled a list down to nine teams, which feels like a a pretty big field at this stage of the season. But I, I couldn't uh, I couldn't get it down any smaller than that. How how many teams did you wind up with in your group of contenders? I think I had ten. Yeah, ten. Okay, so let's get into this. A third guys. of the league. I mean, again, I don't need to say it for like the 480th time over the last couple of seasons, but this unprecedented era of Perry, or, or at least unprecedented for our lifetimes, because you'd have to go back to that you know stretch in the mid to late 70s to really get this. Um, but yeah, like it, this is, at least from the NBA's perspective, the closest thing to true parity you're ever going to get, where... We're sitting here a third of the way through the season saying a third of the league, just like last year, has a, you know, at least puncher's chance to compete for a title. From your perspective, I mean, I know every year before the playoffs, you write this piece where you're looking at past champions to try and help you predict among the playoff field, which of the teams have the best chance to win just based on statistical indicators. Did you have any kind of a formula for choosing your field of contenders here or is there any sort of even if it's anecdotal but like cr- criteria that you were using to help you pick who you felt like these teams should be so i didn't use the uh the, the formula i use at the end of the season where i go through like you know a bunch of things whether it's offensive efficiency defense efficiency half court efficiency um how like where their star player ranks kind of in the league i that i do at the end of the season but for this i did look in addition to just straight up using you know my eyes and indicator like stats and stuff from the first third of the season I also tried to stick with something that I don't know if you remember I said after the 2022 playoffs when coming out of that year I said you know from now on I like when I'm debating whether a team I think is good during the regular season actually has a chance to win in the playoffs like win a championship I'm gonna ask myself before I deem them a contender do I believe this team as a, ch- a championship-level shot creator? And do I believe this team at least has a path to a truly elite defense? And if I can't answer yes to both those questions, then I shouldn't call a team a contender. Now, I'm going to break my own rule in some of the teams at the bottom of the top 10. But like, if we wanted to get really, really hyper-specific and really exclusive, I could whittle this way down from 10. And you know, only a few teams, I, I think, could answer both those questions. But... Yeah, I think that's like if I really wanted to be selective during the season, that's those are the questions I try to ask myself. Okay, so let me ask you this question then about the Bucks. Okay. Cuz obviously we both have the Bucks yep. on our list of teams here. Their offense looks amazing and I I think the Dame Giannis two-man game has gotten better, but it still hasn't fully clicked. They're not exactly yep. firing on all cylinders as a two-man tandem, like working cooperatively and actions together that doesn't mean like it's working really well when they're on the court together and certain stuff that they're doing you know what like even if it's not two-man action but like double ball screens for Dame with Giannis and Brooke Lopez things like that have still been really effective so I'm not concerned really at all about their offense it's been elite I think it's going to continue to be elite but to your point about asking yourself does this team have a path to an elite defense. I'll take it back to last year, and we had this conversation numerous times about Denver. They finished, I think, middle of the pack defensively, like around 15th, but it was so bunched up. They were like 
half a point per hundred possessions outside the top 10. And they had been for like a three month stretch, a top five defense. And that allowed me to have some measure of faith in them as a playoff team. And then they really backed it up by being a top five defense in the playoffs. So as much as I think people have tried or want to make that something of a paradigm shifting championship victory and an indicator that in this era of offensive proliferation, different kinds of teams can win the championship, which I generally do believe. I don't think that that team necessarily broke those rules in the way that some people kind of want to imagine with Milwaukee. They're 20th in defense overall right now. Over the last month or so, they've been in the top 15. I think they're like 13th or 14th in the last month. And yet, I still don't see a path to them being what you would call an elite defense. I don't even think, you know, top 10 defense by the end of the season. It just, in the way that they're constructed right now, which may not be the way they're constructed by season's end, I actually don't see that for them, even in the way that I might have seen it for Denver last year. And that's where I'm like, yes, I like this team clearly is a championship contender to me, but do I really believe that they can win the title with the defensive personnel that they currently have? You know, starting Dame and Malik Beasley in the backcourt and even like Chris Middleton on the wing. And like also I've said many times this season, I just haven't been wowed by Giannis's defense. And I don't think he's done nearly enough to provide a safety net behind those guys. And like, I, I think that he can ratchet it up and will be better either the rest of the season or in the playoffs. But where are you at with Milwaukee as a contender, given the criteria that you have just laid out? Well, it's tough because again, if you know, the question is just, do they have a path to an elite defense? And I could, I guess, convince myself all the chips are down, must win game or get to the playoffs in a series. Like can a team with Giannis Antetokounmpo and Brooke Lopez on it defend at a passable level? They should be able to, but again, elite's a different word. Now I will say when talking about the Nuggets last year, and this is something I, you know, I often talked about either here on the pod or in videos or writing last year, but like, I know maybe sometimes we get too into the weeds with stats and like, what are we really talking about? We're talking about point five points per possession here or there, but I will say this. The Nuggets last year, even when they weren't great defensively during the regular season, like you mentioned that stretch, the three-month stretch, and they were like a top five defense, they finished close to top 10. But regardless, they were a slightly above average defense. And you can look at, you know, basketball reference has that like relative to league average that the Nuggets were 0.6 per 100 possessions better than league average defensively last year. And if you remember, I went through the database last year and found that because everyone always says like, oh, a a team hasn't won a championship without a top 10 defense since 2000 this or a top 15. If you just go by league average defense per like every season, according to basketball reference, the only two teams that have won championships without at least league average defenses were the 1956 Philadelphia Warriors and the 2001 Lakers. So like, to me, that's more the barometers. Like, can you even be average on defense? Yeah. And right now, 2001 Lakers, by the way, had the number one playoff defense. They won the championship. And they they were the defending champions that we knew were like an all-time talented team with an all-time duo at the top. Like, 
that that had a gear defensively. Now, maybe some people will say, well, the Bucs have that. Not as sold. But anyway, point is, this year the Bucs are a below average defense. I think they're 0.5 or 0.6 below uh, per 100 possessions on the defensive end. So that is one way to look at it, even if you do want to compare them to last year's Nuggets, who weren't blowing anyone out of the water defensively. So, yeah, that's, it's, it's a very long way of me saying I don't know how to answer that because I feel like there is a path there to this team being okay enough defensively where the offensive talent and the the growing synergy and just the combined talent of Giannis and Dame should carry them home. But when you start talking about some of the other contenders we're going to get into who are much more balanced teams and still great offensive teams, like that's where it gets hard for me to be like, well, then I'm going to pick a very flawed defensive team to beat one of those teams four out of seven times. Yeah, so I guess I'm thinking... Is there a path to really bolstering, particularly the point of attack defense? I think Caruso is pretty much out of the question for them. Yeah. Don't think they have the juice to get that done. But I don't know. Is there anyone else that you could like see them targeting and maybe acquiring that could really help? Like I was thinking maybe Dennis Smith Jr. <laughs> in Brooklyn, who has turned himself into a really, really good perimeter defender. Like, Could they get Javon Carter back from Chicago? Something like that where it's like, maybe it's not somebody who's going to start, but it could be somebody who's playing 15 to 20 minutes in a playoff game and maybe even closing games situationally when they need just a little bit more stability and resistance at the point of attack. And that that could potentially go a long way. I mean, again, I think maybe even it's just Giannis ratcheting it up in the playoffs makes that big of an impact. I think Brooke has been fantastic. Like he's like somehow just as good as ever defensively in what is this now his age 36 season. Like it's unbelievable. Uh, and like maybe internally, you know, Andre Jackson Jr., Marjan Beauchamp, like can one of these guys emerge with a more consistent rotation spot? I've lobbied actually for Beauchamp to get a look in the starting lineup just because I think I, like Beasley is a really good offensive player. He's shooting the absolute lights out this year, but how much do they need his offense versus how much they would potentially need the defense that somebody like Bochamp could provide somebody who is still a little bit mistake prone, but I think in terms of his defensive upside, like infinitely better than somebody like Beasley, just because of his, his physical tools and his ability to like stay on balance when he's guarding the ball and trying to contain penetration. I think, He's had some really impressive pops as a defender this year. And then, you know, Crowder's missed a bunch of time. Maybe him being back will help. Like, I, we're talking about a path. Maybe there is a path here that I'm not entirely acknowledging, but it just, it's it's hard for me to fully believe in a team that is this weak defending on the perimeter. Yeah, and with, with respect to Beasley, who, yes, like offensively is having a great year shooting the hell out of the ball, he is the classic guy where it's like game five of a second round or a conference final series. And it's like he gets relegated to the bench and you don't see him the rest of the playoffs yes. because he's on play. Like he's just that guy, you know, that yes. you see every year it happens with a guy like that. And they need to find an upgrade there, whether it's internally or externally, but they need to find another guy who can play somewhat heavy to write like regular to heavy minutes in the playoffs without being a total defensive liability. 
Yeah, and I think somewhere this is really reflected to me is their defensive rebound rate, which is bottom 10 in the league. And off the top of my head, I feel like throughout the entire Bud era, every season they were like top five in defensive rebound rate. That was a huge part of their scheme and why they played the way that they did. Some of this maybe is like, you know, they've experimented more with having their bigs up at the level, doing some blitzing. That's going to impact your defensive rebound rate if you're not keeping your bigs closer to the basket, if you're in rotation more often. To me, it's more just about like they're allowing way more dribble penetration, and that's forcing their bigs to commit a lot more, and that's exposing them to offensive rebounds in a way that they just haven't in the past few years. And like, that's just a bit of a red flag to me about like this is a an issue, and if you don't address it, then it's possibly, probably going to limit what you can accomplish in the postseason. So yes, they're still a contender to me. I included them in this list, but I feel like something's got to change before I like fully, fully believe in that. I have no such reservations about Boston. Yeah. Even though like, you know, if we're talking top, top, top end talent, they're not on the level of Milwaukee or Philly or Denver. They, to me are like clearly the most complete, the most balanced of these teams. Uh, They're one of only two teams right now that are top five on both sides of the ball. The other being Philly. Mm -hmm. Boston is fifth in offense, fourth in defense. The Sixers are second on both sides of the ball. And they've played a pretty soft schedule, but still. To be top two on both ends for a third of the season is incredibly impressive, especially when you consider... Like, they've got more ammo than Milwaukee to go and make another move and add another piece, right? If there's one of these teams that I'm looking at and thinking they're probably going to look better on paper at the end of the year than they do now, it's probably Philly. So, you know, apart from the playoff baggage with Embiid, do you see a reason why we shouldn't have Philly above Milwaukee in this pecking order right now if we were ranking it? No, absolutely not. They have been light years ahead of the box in terms of overall performance so far through a third of the season. And I know the record doesn't necessarily say that in terms of being light years ahead of them, but they are on different planets as like overall basketball teams right now, based on what we've seen through a third of the season. Um, you've got Embiid playing the best ball of his career, and that's a year after he won the goddamn MVP. What Maxi's doing, like, Philly has a credible argument to make that they have the best duo in the league right now. Or at the very, like, the, the, the two, the duo playing the best right now. And and that's big. And they're balanced on both ends. Um, you mentioned, like, not just balanced. They're top two on both ends. They've got a guy in Nick Nurse who, as I've said, you know, countless times over the years, say what you will about some things that happened during the regular season the last couple of years in Toronto. But if you're talking about a coach who nails the little things and the details and, like, not just the game-to-game adjustments, but, like, the in-game adjustments that matter when the margins are razor-thin in the playoffs. Like, Nick is that guy. Nurse is that guy. And the Sixers have that guy now, you know, on the sidelines. And, yeah, you mentioned the baggage with beat, and that is what it boils down to. I don't need to get into that again. We can save that for the spring. But, like, I'm for sure... For sure, I'm at a point with Embiid where I need to see it to believe it in the playoffs, you know, like, like, in May and maybe June... But 
I'll also say, you know, and it is something I said last year and the year before that, like, if you just go by how good he is and how well he is playing, it doesn't make sense to assume, and there's no reason to, like, that it should happen where then all of a sudden he just won't be this good in the play. Like, it, I'm not saying... Right. I'm not saying it won't happen because we've seen it happen over and over and over again. And I know, as you said, a lot of that has to do with injuries, but like it has happened over and over and over again. So I need to see it to believe it. But I, like just logically, if we're just look, coming at this logically, there's no reason that it should happen, right? And if he plays anywhere near this well, and him and Maxie are anywhere near this good as a duo, and Nurse lives up to his reputation in the playoffs, and they make good on some of the additional trade capital they acquired in the James Harden trade, where they're now in a very unique position where like they can make a pretty significant in-season upgrade with little risk attached to it in terms of how it'll affect their future because they're going to have a boatload of cap space anyway this summer. Like You put it all together, like this team makes a lot of sense if you're picking a potential championship team. Like, yeah. They've got all the ingredients. Right now, I think you, you you can argue they've got all the ingredients as presently constructed to make a run at this. If they make one more move and everything else just stays kind of on balance, this team can absolutely win a title. Again, and then we're, we're going to sit here in May and I'm going to be trying to explain why they went wrong again. But Okay, <clears throat> so I have a couple points and I have a couple questions. Mm -hmm. One, I don't think they have all the ingredients right now. Okay. I think... They are still too light on secondary ball handling and just like off the dribble creation. Like when Maxie's off the floor, that is very evident. And if they're looking for some kind of an upgrade, like some kind of a piece to add, that's where I would focus. Doesn't necessarily even have to be somebody who starts, right? Just has to be somebody who can keep them afloat when Maxie isn't on the floor and also probably, you know, play alongside Maxie in closing lineups potentially. Another point, and this is just about Embiid, and you kind of spoke to it. I, how many times have I said this? He has an all-time playoff run in him. It is coming at some point. I so badly just want to see him get through a postseason relatively unscathed. I don't think it's realistic to expect somebody that size to be like fully healthy throughout an entire season and an entire postseason, but like no serious injuries. Just let him show what he is capable of on the biggest stage without some kind of physical ailment hampering him. I believe he's capable. And I, I just, it bothers me so much because I think people have such narrow imaginations. So many people want to say just because it hasn't happened and just because we've seen him flop in the playoffs in the past, that that is destined to keep happening. And that's so dumb and narrow-minded and it lacks so much imagination to just say that because it hasn't happened, that means it can't or it won't. So whether it's this year or in the future, I do believe that run is coming. And I think there's every reason to believe that it could be this year. He's playing the best basketball of his life. And he's doing it in a redesigned offense that I think is playing to his strengths in an entirely new kind of way. So there's that. Questions. Talked about them being top two on both sides of the ball. I believe in it offensively. I don't know how much I believe in it defensively. Embiid is incredible. 
he cleans up so much on the back line. We talked last episode when we did our top 10 rankings, which I think if we were to rank them again, we both probably would have Embiid number one. Yeah, because I, I was mean- already I was already splitting hairs having him number two. And then in like the week since, he's averaged, you know, 42, 14, 4, and 2 on like, you know, 70% true shooting. So I mentioned to you yesterday, uh, um, after we did the Raptors show with Will Lou, that this is the first time in the now four seasons that, you know, Jokic and Embiid have been by far the two best players in the league. This is the first time that I have Embiid over Jokic. I had Jokic like slightly still ahead last week, week and a half ago. But no, I, I'm with you. I think Embiid has overtaken him. I know we're splitting hairs here, and we can probably have this conversation and debate 45 more times over the course of the season. We don't have to do that. But I do think that's meaningful. That even, to me, uh, like I, I would have Embiid ahead of Jokic right now. If you remember, even last year, I still didn't. I thought, you know, I, I wasn't, I didn't think it was egregious he won MVP, but I still would have had Jokic ahead of him. I genuinely believe Embiid is ahead of him right now. So, yeah, the point I was making, we talked on that episode about how they're using him defensively, how it's been a lot of kind of one-man zone, and him doing the 2.9 thing, and doing the point switching, and just sort of like staying close to the basket, and that has resulted in him literally contesting more shots at the rim than any player in the NBA.com database, and holding opponents to like 51% shooting on those shots. 99th percentile as a rim deterrent, basically A-plus as a rim protector. So that can account for a lot. But when you look at the pieces around him, you know, that does not scream top two or even top five defense to me. I don't entirely know what to do with that. Like there are good defenders here, you know, like Pat Beverly is a good defender. DeAnthony Melton is a good defender. And I actually, you know, I give a lot of credit to Maxi, who I think fights his ass off and has turned himself into an adequate defender, but is obviously still hampered by his lack of size. Tobias Harris, same kind of thing. I think he works pretty hard. He's definitely improved as a defender. But if we're looking around the league and ranking like power forward defenders who start, he's like probably in the lower half yeah, of the league. Uh, Batum, like really good defender. Been a, a, an amazing addition. And by the way, another one of the points I wanted to make <laughs> since the Batum addition, that starting lineup, Maxi Melton, Batum, Harris, Embiid now play 219 minutes together and has a plus 34 net rating 135.2 offensive rating 101.3 on defense and if you look at lineups around the league that have played at least 200 minutes that's like twice as good as any other lineup it's obscene Batum's been an amazing fit there uh and as a lot of people have pointed out is like maybe the best entry passer that they've ever had which is an important thing to have when you, you know, yes. roster Joel Embiid. So all the pieces are fitting together really nicely, but I, is the defense really this good? Maybe not, but I don't think it has to be. Mm. And I think, and you just kind of pointed it out, I think they have enough guys that have, are like, like bought in on the defensive end enough. Even some of their weaker defenders are putting forth the required effort where I don't think the defense is completely going to bottom, like fall out, you know, and bottom out. Are they the yeah. second best defense in the league personnel-wise? Absolutely not. But between Embiid being what he is on that end, 
guys like Beverly, Melton, Batum doing their thing, and then the weaker defenders just buying in and putting in like an honest day's work on that end. I also think that they are should remain good enough defensively, where when combined with what an offense with Embiid and Maxi playing at this level can be, I'm not really that concerned about it. So, yeah, top like number two defense by April, probably not. But bad defense or like concerning defense when the playoffs roll around, I really don't think so. And then my last question would be if we're looking at the offense, and I said that I believe in it, but if we start seeing teams really scheme aggressively to take away that Maxi Embiid two-man game, which you will see happen in the regular season, but it's going to ratchet up in the playoffs in terms of the game planning and in terms of the focus on limiting those two guys specifically. If teams, you know, in high-level defenses like Boston's, for instance, are able to funnel more of the offense to like the ancillary guys, do you believe they have enough there? That's where I get into like, they need another piece. And I might, even though I have these questions about the defense, might skew toward offense anyway, just because I feel like that's going to be the focus of every playoff defense. And, you know, they maybe need to upgrade the pieces around those two guys to ensure that doesn't completely jam up the Sixers offense. What if you can add a really good offensive player who's also a good defender? Who are we talking about here, Cash? Got anyone in mind yeah, in particular? What if, the, what if the 76ers trade three first-round picks or two picks and a swap for Pascal Siakam? All right, we're not getting into this now. Point is, <laughs> Sixers are a contender. They could look like even more of one by a season's end. And I'm very curious and very excited to see what they do because I think they've been one of the best stories in the league so far. We didn't expect them to do this, right? Like, we didn't come into the season... When we did our, our contending tiers before the year started, they were in the fringe contending category. So for them to be here, and we're putting them kind of a notch above Milwaukee even, obviously speaks to what Embiid, Maxi, Nick Nurse, and even like the other guys, Melton, Ubre. Ubre has been a great yeah. addition. Like uh, Harris, like all these guys have been really impressive. And I think they all deserve a ton of credit for where they put this team. Yeah, and I think just in general, this is like a good reminder of how... Even in the NBA where like you could say out of the major leagues, it's the most predictable somewhat in terms of like, you know, the best players have the biggest impact and you can for the most part say, okay, this seems to be really good. This team's not like, I think this is a good reminder of how beautiful unpredictability is too. And also why you can't take anything for granted because just go back a few months to right before the season starts. Okay. And Everyone, myself included, is rightfully praising the Bucks for going out and trading for Damian freaking Lillard, right? And securing Giannis Antetokounmpo's services long into the future because of it. And saying, okay, well, they're a contender for years to come. And obviously, they still very well could be and should be. But my point is, like, think of the way we were looking at the Bucks coming into the season. And think of the state the Sixers were in. With the hardened cloud looming over them, a new coach, people talking about whether the way Harden's exit will happen is going to lead to Joel Embiid's exit in Philly and like the end of the process and the Embiid era in Philly. That was all like two months ago. We're not talking about even the summer or a year ago. We're talking about two months ago before this season started. And now here we are a couple months later, only a third of the way through that season, talking about the Sixers 
after trading James Harden, but before making the next move that even really truly quote-unquote replaces him from a talent perspective, we've got them ahead of the box as contenders and with less concerns going into the final two-thirds of the season. Like, just think about that. It's remarkable. I, I have thought about it. I do think about it. I think so often about how Mike Muscala literally saved this franchise and how if he hadn't hit that shot in the bubble to play the Thunder out of their top 20 protected pick that the Sixers wound up keeping, the pick that they acquired in trading Markel Fultz, who was supposed to be the lead guard of their future with Joel Embiid, that pick that they got to keep because of Mike Muscala became Tyrese Maxey, who now is their lead guard of the present and future with Joel Embiid. It's just the poetic symmetry is unbelievable. If Mike Muscala doesn't ring the bell for game one of the finals in Philly, <laughs> F this franchise. <laughs> oh, man. Um, okay, so we didn't really talk about Boston. And I feel like we haven't... I don't know. We haven't talked about them that much. Like, we talked early in the year about the the interesting things that they were doing with their defense. I think we both agree and have agreed that they're, if not the best team in the NBA, at least the best team in the East right now. And so, I don't know. It's maybe like a compliment to them in a way that we haven't talked about them a ton because there's just not that much to talk about. They're just really, really good. Um, but is there anything in, like, this conversation that you feel like you need to get off your chest about the Celtics or that you want to delve into at all? No, like, I, I don't think it's anything we haven't talked about before. Look, I, I do think they're the best team in the league right now. Probably the highest ceiling two-way team they have, even though he hasn't won one, I think what everyone would consider a championship-level shot creator in Tatum, maybe a secondary one in Brown. Obviously, elite defense. They have the best top six in the league in terms of, like, rotation and talent. Now, if, if you want to talk concerns, and again, it's not something we haven't discussed before over the years, the way that their offense maybe bogs down in crunch time and in in the type of possessions that will determine playoff games, uh, their over-reliance on long jump shots and their inability to consistently, you know, penetrate and get to the rim. And also, like, we talk about how good that top six is and how much better it is than the rest of the league, but... With that comes the fact that they don't have the depth of some other contenders. And it's something we talked about like after they made, I guess, the holiday trade. But like you start going down the list once you really get into their bench. And it, you know, it doesn't inspire a ton of comments. And I think there are concerns there. But the flip side to that is like, because I was thinking about this the other night, it's like, you know, you, you could say that no other contender would be as devastated by like their fourth or fifth best player going down. Because, you know, they have better players below that that can kind of fill the gap. But the other way to look at it is like, well, no other contender has a fourth or fifth guy this good. And that's why they wouldn't be as devastated. So, you know, I, I, I don't want to kind of get too down on them for that. I This team is more than good enough to win a championship. But if there's a major concern, it's one we've had the last couple of years, even with slightly different personnel. And it's just that... I, I'm not sure I'm all the way there in terms of trusting this offense. Crunch time comes, again, you know, deep in a series in May or possibly June against another team who's, you know, basically just as talented and maybe has a more playoff-proof offense. Yeah, I think that's fair, and I think it's like, th this is still not a very good passing team at the yeah. end of the day. That's kind of what it comes down to for me. 
I think a lot of the stuff about their late game offense is kind of overblown. And I think Tatum in particular has gotten to a point where, yes, the decision-making can go haywire some of the time, but that happens for like pretty much every player, even the best players in the league outside of maybe Jokic, where there are just times when suddenly the things that they've been doing that have brought them so much success throughout the course of a game go out the window. Like that happens to everybody. Again, maybe except for Jokic. But like, I think generally in terms of like his shoot or pass decisions, his shoot or drive decisions, his driving ability, like the footwork, the spin moves, the Euro steps, he's gotten really good at getting to the rim, evading defenders, making good decisions out of double teams. I trust it. I trust him. I trust the offense to be good enough to help their defense, which I think come playoff time, you know, we'll get into talking about Minnesota, I'm sure, but come playoff time, if I'm pointing to a team and saying like, this team is going to have the best playoff defense, to me, it's Boston. Yeah. Because of their versatility, because of the way, like, look, their best rim protector they're just able to keep him out of ball screen action in a way that like, a lot of other defenses aren't able to do with their rim protectors. Like I hear people refer sometimes to Porzingis as a drop defender. And I don't even think that's the right way to characterize it. Cause he like, they're just keeping him out of those ball screen actions altogether. He's just doing what Robert Williams was doing before, which is like camping out on like a non-threatening offensive player. And granted, maybe there will be some teams that can put five threatening offensive players on the floor at a time. And, make that less tenable, but not a lot of teams can do that. And he's just able to kind of like camp out around the basket. And meanwhile, it's like, you know, Drew Holiday, who's guarding the opposing center and switching onto the ball handler and pick and roll or Jalen Brown, who's doing that or Tatum. There's so much defensive flexibility on this team and so much defensive talent. And to the point about depth, yes, I do think they probably still need another guy. But if we're talking like, concerns coming into the season and how I feel about it now if there's one thing I can say I don't think I realized coming into the year that like Sam Hauser's a guy like that that is a guy who can stick in a playoff rotation who's legitimately good great shooter pretty stout defender smart player I, he's part of the rotation and I feel good about that so that's one additional guy that I didn't think they would have coming into the year so I don't know they're just really good and I think Every time it feels like they have a meltdown in crunch time or they lose a game that it felt like they should win, it's like a full-blown crisis. And I actually think that just speaks to how good they are that every time that happens. And they've lost, what, six games all year, so it hasn't happened often. But when it does, it just feels like a crisis because when you watch them, it feels like they shouldn't lose. Like, that's how good they are. So uh, that's it. I mean, I only had three contenders in the East. So you have more than that? You, you, you had a fourth? No, I was actually going to ask you, do you have any other teams in the East? So this is where I said, remember I said I had 10, you had nine. This is where my 10th and my 4th in the East is strictly a respect thing. And I think you know where I'm going with this. Even though... But you're the one who's been talking about how the Heat are cooked this year. I know. I said, even though coming into the year, I thought, okay, this is finally going to be the year where I'm off the Heat. And I kind of still am, but look... What I think there's yeah there's 16 and 12 there's six in the East like performance wise this season I don't think anyone's looking at this and being like this is a contender but I realize we're in December not April but I'm just saying if this was April and the thing it was exactly like this they're not even they don't even have to go through the play in they're just in the playoffs proper and you asked me 
based on what I know about this team, like everything we know about Jimmy in the playoffs, the way Bam Adebayo has been playing, the fact that Tyler Hero offensively definitely looks back, the fact that Hawkes Jr. is, you know, a gem of a find because of course he is uh, for the Heat. Like, you add it all up. And also their their willingness to make another move. Now, again, you can argue that they don't have enough to make a significant upgrade. But still, I, I think they're definitely willing to do something. And should, even if it's not a major move, they can probably make some sort of improvement between now and April. You add it all up and it's like, can I really say... This team has zero chance of winning a title. Can I tell myself that? No, I can't. I cannot honestly tell myself that. So if I'm, you know, answering these questions and coming up with a list as honestly as I can, I would still have to say the Heat are on some level a contender. And that would be my fourth East team and the 10th team in my 10. And to that point, you know, we had all like these conversations last year about Two years ago, they were, I think, the number one three-point shooting team in the league in terms of percentage. Last year, they fell to 27th. And then they lost Max Struess and Gabe Vincent, two of their highest volume three-point shooters in the offseason. I was like, man, this team was already slipping as a three-point shooting team. They lose two shooters. Guess what? They're the number one three-point shooting team in the league right now. Uh, Duncan Robinson rebounding uh, from you know, a down year where he went, he found himself outside the rotation by the end of the season um, has been a huge part of that. He's playing the best basketball of his life. Uh, you mentioned Hawkes, who's shooting the ball well. Lowry's shooting the ball extremely well. Hero's shooting the ball extremely well. They're just making it work. And, uh, you know, so I, I agree with pretty much everything you've said. I had a list of teams that I considered and I sort of ranked them and the Heat were like a clear number one on that list for me. I think if we were listing a fourth team, it's definitely them for me as well. And then after that, I had the Knicks, Cavs, and Magic as teams that I gave some like token consideration. I, I don't like the Magic aren't ready. I don't buy them yeah. as a playoff team right now, as much as I think their defense is incredible. Don't think they have enough offensively. The Cavs, if they can get back to full strength, I, I still, I, I just felt like they merited mention because I still think that the talent of that core four is such that they can give a team some problems and I'm not willing to like completely give up on this entire iteration of the team just yet. So I hope they manage to get healthy, stay healthy, go into the playoffs healthy and get a chance to show what they're capable of when they're whole. Uh, and the Knicks, like, again, it's just a team that like deserves a token mention and a hat tip of respect because it doesn't always look pretty. doesn't always look like it should work. But they make it work, and they just kind of have a lot of gritty players who know how to win ugly. And we mentioned off the top, the the Mitchell Robinson injury, I think, is really going to take a dent out of that. But Brunson's been incredible. Randall's been really, really good since that horrific start to the season that he had. They have maybe the best bench in the NBA. So... Again. And the assets to do something. Again, even though I think those assets are a little overrated in terms of being able to get them like a superstar, it's still a good treasure trove of assets in terms of doing something. The one thing I'll add is what you mentioned about them as a team, it's not always pretty. It doesn't always look like it should work, but it like somehow does. That's basically Julius Randle as a player too. Because yeah, and like I, I had this conversation with Dan Devine where I'm like, the the this team has sort of just assumed the Julius Randle identity almost by necessity. His strengths are their strengths. 
his limitations are their limitations. Like it's, it reminds me a lot of the Raptors during the DeRozan era yeah. as well. He, he's like the, the avatar or the microcosm of the team, you know, like, yep. so, so I totally agree with that. But yeah, I, I definitely thought that they deserved to mention here because they're good. And they proved last year that their style can translate to the playoffs. So no, I don't view them as a championship contender, but I wouldn't be surprised at all to see them win a playoff series again this year, which is not something I would have said coming into the year. I think I actually said I would not expect them to be in the second round again yeah. uh, when we were doing our like, you know, over and under achievers episode. So um, they've, they've proven me wrong to some extent. And to your point, they have, they have pieces to maybe make a move. We'll see what they do. We'll see if that move is a move to address the hole at center, or if they feel like they can get by with like Jericho Sims and Isaiah Hartenstein and uh, fill in some blanks elsewhere. Let's take the break. We're 45 minutes into this already, and we've got twice as many teams to talk about in the West. So we're going to have to go through this way quicker in the Western Conference, but we'll take the break and we'll come back and try and do that. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Scores Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative, yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. Okay, Cash, because, like I said, we got to get through this a little bit quicker. Denver, obviously a contender. We've talked about them enough. We know the reasons why. With an improved defense this year. Yeah, and the, the improved defense to me is basically just them sustaining yes. what they did toward the end of last year and into the playoffs, right? Like, it's that's obviously been a focus for them. They've been, you know, top 10 defense pretty much this entire season. I've mentioned how I think Jokic has been pretty much as good as he was in the playoffs last year defensively. I think he was second, maybe third in the league in deflections per game this year. Like, that's always been a strength of his defensively. But I also feel like his rim protection has been a little bit better. There's, they're, they're, they've continued to do the thing they did last year, which was like play more of him in a deep drop and not have him up at the level so, so often. And, and like, you know, their their offense, I think, come playoff time. Similar to Boston's defense, where I'm like, you know, the Nuggets might finish the season like seventh in offensive rating. I'm still going to point to them and be like, that's the best playoff offense in the league. So they're a contender. The Timberwolves, Cash, what do we think? Dude, they're a contender. Listen, I... I think a lot of times what happens is we know the Minnesota Timberwolves as this woebegotten franchise who has seldom even been a playoff team, let alone a true contender. Like, in terms of genuine championship contention, maybe once in the, like, three-decade history of this team, and that was, like, absolute PKG, his MVP year in 03-04 when I think they had the number one seed in the West and made the conference finals. And even then, if you like look on paper at the supporting cast around KG, you wouldn't often say that's a championship type team. But my point is, is that a lot of times with franchises like that and teams like that, it takes a long time for fans or like casual fans or observers to like buy into them as a contender because they just can't picture it. It's inconceivable to them. And 
Not that I'm at all comparing this Wolves team to the beginning of the Warriors dynasty. Please don't think I'm doing that. But what I but what I want to remind people of is it reminds me of that first year the Warriors were crazy good when they ended up winning 67 games and in Kerr's first year and winning the championship because that year, and I know that was different because that was also people were questioning well, whether a jump shooting team could win and all that BS, but it was also a lot about like what we knew the Golden State Warriors as a franchise to be in our lifetimes and our minds and how weird it seemed to picture in our minds them at the end of the season in those jerseys lifting the Larry O'Brien trophy. And I think the same kind of thing happens when a team like Minnesota is as good. People are sitting there thinking like, yeah, they're really good, but like, really? The Timberwolves winning this? I like, I can't picture that. But listen, in terms of just whether they can, believe it. Because say what you will about all that stuff I just mentioned, but a team playing at a 64-win pace through a third of the season with by far the best defense in the league and the by far front runner for defensive player of the year with a young alpha and Anthony Edwards, a great efficient number two in cat, a solid bench and depth. Like that is absolutely a contender. No matter how you slice it, no matter what their uniforms say and what team it is, that's a contender. So let's forget about the uniform for a second and just focus on the players, right? Yeah. I think it's a really interesting comparison because back then with the Warriors, All the questions we were hearing were, can a jump shooting team win a championship? And now, 10 years later, it's like, can a team that starts two centers win a championship? You know what I mean? Like, that's how much the league has changed. And now we're sort of coming back around to, I think we're seeing a lot of teams kind of upsize. But I think with these two guys in particular, the playoff questions are going to dog them until they prove that they can be overcome. And... For me, I've said it many, many times. I think when people think about Rudy Gobert as a playoff player and one who has maybe been disappointing, they seem to think that it's his defense that doesn't translate to the playoffs, when to me it's always been at the offensive end that his flaws have been exposed. And like with Cat, it's kind of... I don't know. If we're talking about stars whose decision-making can go haywire at the worst possible times, he's like the poster boy for that. And whether it's fouling himself out of games or you know driving into a crowd too often instead of maybe being a little bit more patient surveying his options as much as i think having conley there now as an organizer helps out with some of that i'm still going to have those questions about their offense about their ability to beat switches you know cat's ability to when he has like a wing defending him not to just like resort to trying to post that guy up or trying to drive against him from 25 feet and maybe finding a better way to exert himself off of the ball in order to help the team offense as a whole, rather than being like, oh, I have this mismatch. I have to find a way to attack this when that's not really what he's best at. Mm -hmm. And Gobert, like, you know, against switching defenses, that's kind of been a thing that has been able to jam up the offenses of the teams that he's been on for years and years now. Like, those are going to be questions. And Minnesota is a below average offensive team right now. That's where the concerns start to creep in. And I think they are warranted. At the same time, like you say, they are not only the best defense in the league, they are a defense that is 7.5 points per 100 possessions better than league average. In the last 30 years, Cash, that is the fourth best defense relative to league average behind only the 03-04 Spurs, 07-08 Celtics, and the 2019-20 Bucks. 
So a team that lost in the finals, a team that won a championship. Well, the the Spurs that year lost to the Lakers in either the second oh, or sorry, the third, right, yeah. second round or the conference right. finals. But the Celtics obviously won, and then the Bucks. <clears throat> we know what happened to that team in the bubble. That might that's that team's not the worst comparison. That 2019-20 Bucks team had like a historically great defense, an amazing regular season, thrived by playing big, two like seven footers on the floor most of the time. And in the playoffs, I think, look, there was a lot going on. The season was interrupted for like four months. George Floyd got murdered. There were protests breaking out all over the country. There was, you know, the shoot. Then there was the shooting in Kenosha, Wisconsin. They staged a walkout before a playoff game. The whole bubble almost collapsed. There were extenuating circumstances there. But if I'm looking at a team and, and seeing pitfalls, maybe stylistically, I feel like that's not the worst comparison as a team that, yes, had a historically great defense in the regular season, but maybe isn't quite as malleable as, say, the Celtics defense is and could see some pull down in the playoffs and then, like, have their offensive woes exposed at the same time. Like, I could see that happening where, yeah, maybe they flame out in the second round. Totally on the table. But to your point, I think to dismiss them as a contender would also be wrong given what they've shown us so far. Yeah, and that's my point, right? Like, all the things you mentioned are definitely valid, but all of the contenders we were talking about today have questions and concerns to address between now and April, May, and June, right? And the Timberwolves are no different. I'm just saying don't discount them as another contender that has some issues just because you can't picture the Minnesota Timberwolves winning a title or making the finals or whatever it is are the OKC Thunder a contender cash yeah they are similar I guess to what I was saying with the Wolves now the difference is and the big question to ask Wolfond is have they finished their breakfast (laughs) uh we had a funny conversation about this on the Raptors show with Will Lou but the you know Sam Presti said I think on media day I I don't remember if the question was specifically about like making a win now trade this season or just kind of what they were ready for this season and Sam Presti said that that like they still had to take their necessary steps is what he was saying and and they had to finish their breakfast before moving on now in terms of their performance so far this season I think you can say they finished their breakfast and look very much the part of at least a fringe contender like whether it's their record, the underlying metrics, the fact that they have an MVP-level superstar and an elite defense, everything... An MVP-level superstar, and you haven't even mentioned Shea Gilgis-Alexander. <laughs> wow. No, Ch- Chet's great. Um, Dude, uh, okay, before you go on, quickly. Is Chet an all-star? Because at okay, the very least, honesty, it's a conversation, right? Yeah, I was going to say, in all honesty, it's tough for me to answer that without like get, like jotting down the names and being like, okay, here's the six front court guys, here's the wild cards. If you're just asking me, does he have a chance to make, or should he be in the conversation? Yes, without question. I've said it, I I don't remember now whether I said it in a video or a written piece, but I've said that like in terms of a rookie contributing to winning like this and being the missing piece for a winning team at this level, it is very rare in history, like what Chet is doing on in that regard. And, and yeah, like, you know, obviously Shay and jokes aside is the guy I was talking about when I said MVP level superstar, but seriously, like if you look at 
again, similar to what I was saying with the Wolves, where it's like you throw out the uniforms and someone just tells you, here's the team's record, <clears throat> where they rank through a third of the season, where they rank on both sides of the ball, an MVP level, like top five superstar at the top of things with an elite defense. And then someone asked you, so what do you think? You think that team can win a title? You'd be like, yeah, they, they can, have, they're in the conversation at least. So again, it's just then you just like start to think, but ah, but can this team win it yet? And like, are they ready? And if you just ask me like, you know, would you pick them to make the finals and make the conference? I would probably say no, because I would say no, because they're not, quite there yet from an experienced state like I do think they need to get a taste of it in the postseason and maybe take their lumps and learn from the experience I I do think that can sometimes be overblown when people talk about that I'm like oh they need they're not seasoned enough whatever but I do think there's something to like learning on the fly in the playoffs and like needing that experience right when every possession is magnified and you're playing against a team who has been there maybe and just knows how to do it. I, I think the Thunder need to go through that. They're not far away. The big question for me with OKC, and again, something we've talked about off air, is is Sam Presti ready if the opportunity presents itself to make a move in season that could up their title odds? Because no team and definitely no fringe contender or contender is better equipped to make such a move than the Thunder. The Thunder, you can argue, are equipped to make two moves like that if they wanted to over the coming years. They can make a move for a genuine star and still have enough left to make a move for another one. That's the question for me. Like, throw out what he said on media day and the stuff you say to the media and all that crap. Do you believe Sam Presti and the Thunder would make a win-now trade that involves moving like multiple of those very juicy assets for a star-type player this season? Because if they are willing to do that, then they're more than a fringe contender, given how good they already are. If they're adding another impact player to that, this team could win a title. I don't care how crazy that sounds. No, I buy it, and I guess my my mind goes to what type of player would they be looking to get. And to me, the thing I always come back to when I'm thinking about this team, I, I just don't know how seriously I can take a team that rebounds this poorly. Mm. 29th in the league in rebound rate ahead of only the Wizards who are not a real NBA team. I I don't know. Like that, that seems like too big of an Achilles heel for me to like fully trust in their ability to go all the way. So then, okay. If they are looking to make that kind of a trade, is it a big man? Cause Chet's amazing. He starts at center for them. He can get bullied whether that's by opposing big men or like really strong drivers who go right into his body and they can kind of knock him back. And yet he's so long and he has such amazing body control at his size that, I mean, this is hammered home for me, especially the game they played against the wolves a couple of weeks back when frankly he got devoured by Gobert, like just demolished erased at both ends of the floor and on the glass. And yet there were still a couple of times when, Anthony Edwards, one of the strongest drivers in the league, takes the ball right at him, goes right into his chest, and Chet still manages to block his shot. And that's where I'm like, okay, right now it's it's maybe like a little bit of an issue if he's playing center, but like he can still really impact the game defensively in spite of that. We saw that the game against the Nuggets too, right? What do you wind up with? Nine blocks in that game? And even Jokic was talking after that game about how much he was affected 
by the weak side shot blocking. They didn't have him as the primary on Jokic in that game. Like what they usually do when they're playing a behemoth center, like whether it's Embiid or Jokic, is like big man Jalen Williams comes in to take on that assignment so that Chet can be in like the Porzingis role. And Jalen Williams has some like nifty skills. He's a pretty good passer. I like him defensively, but he's so limited offensively. It just doesn't bring any kind of pop as a scorer. As much as like I, I do like his passing, it's just so then okay, is is that the type of player they would target? And does it even need to be a star? You know, like how much could Andre Drummond help this team potentially? You know, I think they can aim higher than that, but I'm just saying somebody who can shore up their rebounding and somebody who can be a little bit better than Jalen Williams when it comes to having to put a proper center on the floor to shield Chet, not just to shield him, but to unleash him as a weak side shot blocker, which I think is actually where he's at his best. Okay, if they were, and I'm not saying give me a specific name, but if they were to make a win-now trade on a level that is much beyond just like an Andre Drummond type or whatever, what position or player type do you think would be the type of star they should target? Like 3 and D specialist, forward, like playmaking forward, like what is it? True big man? Yeah, so like I think the tr- again the true big man thing is maybe something they can address without putting too much on the table, you know? Yeah, I think like Jakob Pertle maybe interesting fit there, um, but if it's like okay, this is the big move, yeah, it's like a big two way wing. Yep. Right, like Dort's a really good defender, but he's like six four. You know, I don't think he's necessarily the ideal guy that you want to have guarding the LeBrons and KDs and Kawhis of the world. So is that? an OG Ananobi, you know, I mean, he doesn't quite rise to the level of like star, but he'd be a pretty damn good fit there. Like what other type of player in even anything resembling that mold would conceivably be available right now? Like, okay. Lowry Markkinen, right? (sighs) Not, not defensively the kind of guy maybe that you would be looking for, but like, holy hell, dude, you would that be a boon to their offense? I mean, geez. And, and like, he's been rumored to be on the table and they've been rumored to be in the mix. And if the asking price that's been reported is true, which is something in the range of like five premium draft assets, there's basically one team that could actually put that amount of draft capital on the table and still be in totally fine shape moving forward. So that that would be a really interesting fit to me as well. Funny thing with uh, Mark and Wolf on those is, but our listeners don't because we edited this out of a previous podcast, but... Uh, there was an episode a few weeks ago, and I don't even remember what the topic was. Oh, I think it was when we were ranking the rebuilders. And when we got to the jazz um, in our original recording, I started mentioning something about like marketing being a potential traitor. And and I couldn't remember like where I read it. And I was like, I mean, maybe I'm just making this up. Like, did I not actually read this over the summer? And then for the life of me, I couldn't find it. And we ended up deciding, yeah, like I, I don't think there was anything actually out there about that. And we got rid of it because I was like, yeah, I guess I, I I don't know why I said that. We edited that out because I was like, yeah, marketing is not on the trade block. And then what, like uh, less than a week, maybe a week later, it ends up coming out. Oh, marketing might be on the trade block. So Maybe, I don't know, maybe I foresaw it, uh, but... Yeah. But, I, but it's, it, the reporting has been, he's not really on the block. Yeah. They're just open to the possibility of getting bowled over by an offer, essentially. Sure. And again, I think there's one team that could potentially bowl them over and that would make sense for them to do so, and that is OKC. So yeah, that that would make sense. OG would make sense. 
I mean, again, this is like thinking a, a little bit smaller, but could they roll the dice on Wiggins potentially as a change of scenery guy? You know, it's like, <laughs> yes, he's really struggling. We also saw him be arguably the second best player on a title winning team two years ago, not even two years ago. So he fits the mold in a lot of ways. Um, but and yeah, that's that's kind of where I'd be looking. Other than salary matching, wouldn't require as much in terms of asset capital. Yeah. Well, I mean, and what they have the benefit of is they don't necessarily need shot creation. Yeah. Like they have that in Shea and in J-Dub. And I don't know. I mean, you could always have more, but it's like if you go with more of a strict play finisher type, like a Markinen, like an OG, that's still a huge upgrade, and you don't have to worry about the opportunity cost of not of not adding more shot creation. Like they have it in spades already. What do we got? Three contenders left, and I'm assuming we have the same three. Yeah. So Clippers. Yeah, the Clippers to me have shown that they can definitely win a title. Look, top ten on both ends. James Harden's getting more comfortable, and to be honest, looks more explosive over the last few weeks than he has in like a couple years. Um, and the he biggest, looks amazing right now. Yeah. <laughs> he looks so good. But the biggest development, as we've discussed, is that first of all, Kawhi Leonard has missed just one game, and it was their last game with a hip issue that I'm assuming is maybe more just their way of getting him a game off. He's been uber healthy, the healthiest he's been, I think, in like seven years. And more importantly, looks like close to the best player in the world the last few weeks, just under 30 points per game on 62, 53, 91 shooting. Over his last 11 games, which the Clippers, not coincidentally, went 10-1 and won in. This team, with anything close to this version of Harden and Kawhi, is definitely a contender. And that's before adding that they also still have Paul George, who, up until a few weeks ago, was playing even better than Kawhi. So, like, again, it's one of those things where, like, if you just ask me, based on the way this team is performing, with the talent they have... With Ty Lue, who's a proven postseason coach, you know, we talked about Nick Nurse being the kind of like margins guy in the playoffs. Lou has proven that too. You add all that up, like absolutely this team is a contender, but similar to kind of what we were talking about with Embiid and the Sixers. And obviously this does not apply to Kawhi because we've seen him do it countless times in the playoffs, countless times in the playoffs. But just like the same way we have questions about wanting to see it, to believe it with Embiid, with the Clippers, it's like, getting them healthy, you know, getting them to the spring healthy is more the I'll believe it when I see it part of it with them. But in terms of like the abilities on the court, if they are healthy, absolutely this team's a contender. And I don't really understand any arguments to the contrary based on what we've seen over the last three or four weeks other than someone just saying, well, I don't believe the last three or four weeks. I don't believe James Harden can keep this up. I don't believe he suddenly regained his explosiveness. Like, and those are all fair you know, points to make. But, you know, unless our eyes are lying to us, this team with James Harden on it is absolutely a contender. So I wrote about this team yesterday. And what I basically said was like, let's try and boil the frustration with this team from the last four plus years down to two things. Sporadic availability of their two best players coming into this year together. They'd played only about 40% of the Clippers games since they joined forces in 2019 and the lack of a true lead playmaker 
who could take the creation load off of those two guys' shoulders because they're good playmakers for their positions. They've both gotten better over the years, but it's not really what they are best at. Like they're really good self-creators. They're very good shooters and play finishers, incredible isolation scorers, not necessarily the best at creating for others. And when you take on the burden of like creating for yourself and everybody else, that I think is a big reason why we saw this team kind of look janky offensively at times, bogged down into a lot of isolation play. Not that James Harden is like the ideal person to get you out of that style of play. He's an ISO heavy player himself, but I really do think we're seeing the benefits of his playmaking. And I honestly think Kawhi more than anybody is reaping those benefits right now. You look at this run that he's on, how efficient he's been, He's doing it with a usage rate that is like quite a bit lower than it's been the last few years. And something I, I spotlighted in the piece is like, you look at his rate of assisted field goals. And the first year he was a Clipper, it was 36%. The next year was 38%. Last year, it was about 40, 41%. And this year, 53% of his field goals have been assisted. And that to me is a big reason why he is having his most efficient scoring season a 63% true shooting. And in this last like 12-ish games, when they've really started to hit their stride, it's like 73%. Because he's just having like, he'll get to his spots. Like there's only so much you can do to stop Kawhi from getting to his spots. But he's having to do so much less work to get there now. And um, I also think like Harden being there has made them a much more potent transition team. As much as like his instinct, I think, is to slow the game down a lot of the time. He's still a great hit-ahead passer, somebody who can generate very efficient open-court offense. And, like, offensively was where they were really struggling after getting Harden. Defensively, they were really good from the time they got him, and they've continued to be excellent defensively. And I think with Kawhi, who I think even when he was struggling offensively, to me still looked great defensively, he's doing that in a bit of a different way. Like, they have him playing the four on defense pretty much full-time now which means that outside of crunch time, which is when they'll get serious and like stick him on the opposing team's best player, he's pretty much defending off ball all the time now. You know, he's not getting those assignments guarding top perimeter scoring threats. He's like more of a weak side havoc creator. And he's just doing that exceptionally well. And um, yeah, I, I just think like, again, you talk about balanced teams, right? Top 10 on both sides of the ball, sixth in net rating, I think. And since they made the starting lineup change, going from Westbrook to Mann in the starting five, they're 14 and four. And that starting lineup is plus 16.5 points per 100 possessions. So the way that I concluded that piece was basically by saying, yes, the health question is going to linger over this team throughout the entire year. Everyone's just going to be holding their breath, waiting for that other shoe to drop. But those two issues that we talked about, you can boil the frustration down, right? The availability of their two stars. Paul George has missed two games. Kawhi, as you mentioned, just missed his first last night. And now they have the, the true lead playmaker that they've been missing. And to me, it feels like the only hole you can poke in their case as a true blue championship contender right now is the precedent of them not being fully healthy at the right time. Uh, I will add to uh, James Harden looks pretty locked in defensively. Yeah. And again, another guy who like, okay, if he's defending the ball, yes, he's still going to be susceptible to the blow buys. 
But as a low man, he's been really good. Like making really proactive rotations gets as many of those swipe down steals that are always uh, logged as blocks for some reason. Like he gets as many of those as anybody. He's been really good as a low man and has always been underrated as a post defender. So like him defending on the back line of the defense, I think has been quite effective. And we've talked about Russ too. Like I think Russ is having maybe his best defensive season right now. He's like the opposite of Harden. Like him defending on ball is actually great. And him defending off ball is when things get really shaky. But yeah, I don't know. It's like they just, I think this might be the most complete team that they have built around Kawhi and PG. Oh, without question. Without question. So yeah, knock on wood that they can stay healthy. I would love to see what this team, you know, fully locked and loaded going into the playoffs can actually look like. Uh, sort of like the Embiid thing, right? Just give me one playoff run where they get through it unscathed and let's see what they actually look like. You know, it's uh, this is looking like pretty close to peak Kawhi right now. Like we've got to hope that he can sustain that and stay healthy. Suns and Lakers, the last two teams that I have. I, I don't actually want to talk about the Suns at all. Again, because we're going long here as we always do. But like, what is there to say? They're just entirely theoretical right now. So... I still consider them a contender because fully healthy to me, they clearly are like with that amount of offensive firepower, but right now it's purely theoretical. Can I just say one thing, even though I know you don't want to get too deep into the suns and that's fine. Just when it comes to Bradley Beal, this is obviously one of the major concerns I had. Lots of people had when they traded for him, because like, as I pointed out at the time, over the last four seasons, Beal had averaged only like 52 games per season. And it was due to shoulder, knee, foot, hip, wrist, and hamstring injuries. Okay. And I know like some of the pushback was like, well, some of that was probably, you know, the Wizards at times weren't good and they were sitting him down this and like all these things. But the fact of the matter was he missed a lot of time over the last four years with a variety of ailments that I'm not saying any fault of his own, but would seem to indicate the guy has become injury prone. And through a third of the season, though, you know, Booker has missed time too, the biggest reason why their new big three has only played 20-something minutes together over two games is because Bradley Beal has missed the majority of time with back and now ankle injuries. So, like... I don't know, man, like their big three, or at least one third of their big three, if not more of it, is made of glass. The depth behind them is fake, as we've you know talked about before. I don't believe in their defense. It, it's hard for me to consider them a legitimate contender, as crazy as that sounds, given that this team has Kevin Durant and Devin Booker, and eventually, maybe, hopefully, Bradley Beal. Yeah, I don't know. I just, I guess part of me is still just like, they're like plus eight per hundred possessions when... KD and Booker have shared the floor and you you throw Beal into that mix. And I I just feel like you can have at least two of those guys on the floor at pretty much all times. I can't not keep the candle burning as much as it's starting to flicker and threaten to go out entirely. As long as there is the possibility and the hope of them getting healthy at the right time, I, I have to believe that they have a chance. They're currently ninth right now, a game over 500. They are closer to 11th because they're a game up on the Warriors than they are to sixth. And they yeah, lost their last whatever. game in Portland. 
blowing a 16-point lead in Portland to a Blazers team that I think entered that game having lost like seven straight or eight straight or something. I'm not saying it's going great right now, Cash. I'm just saying at some point it could start going a lot better. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. It's, again, it's the same conversation. But this is why I didn't want to talk about them because it's like we, we're not basing this on what we've seen from them so far this season. Even though there have been some flashes of them looking really good, even in the games that Beal hasn't played. I mentioned how good they've been when KD and Booker have been on the floor together. I honestly think Nurk has been pretty good. Like he had a rough stretch early in the season, but to me, he's given them pretty much what you would have expected or hoped to get from him there. Like, I don't know. I, I think it like they, they could still coalesce, but uh, just a lot of question marks. Lakers, they have not really like carried over their mojo from the in-season tournament. They've actually been kind of awful since winning the inaugural IST. I'm looking here, actually. They've gone one in five since then with losses to the Bulls, who are admittedly red hot ever since uh, Zach Levine. Eight and three. Bulls yeah, are eight, eight and three since losing Levine with wins over the Lakers, Heat, yeah. Bucks, and Sixers, I think. Yep. And that's probably not doing wonders for Zach Levine's trade value, but... Uh, it's been a, a great coming out party for Kobe White, that's for sure. But losses to sorry, they got they got smoked by the Spurs. The Lakers did, then lost to the Knicks, lost to the Bulls, lost to the Wolves, who were on the second night of a back to back last night. Although I think the Lakers might have been as well. They just haven't been all that good since uh, making this statement in the in season tournament, being like, "Look what we can do when we really care, when the stakes are high, when we ratchet it up," and. I honestly, if it weren't for them winning the IST, I wouldn't have them here. I'm like putting them here as like a show of respect for what they did in that tournament. And maybe I'm over-indexing on the in-season tournament. Am I putting too much weight in those performances? Because I feel like they showed me something there. And like since then, they've showed me not much. I do think it's funny that when the in-season tournament was created with all that, you know, we joked about the magic and all these other teams. And it was like, Oh, like imagine, like what a good story would be or a fun story would be if a non-contender or like some team we don't really buy, like has this great tournament run, even though they're like, you know, obviously not contending. Just a real cute story type of team, right? Yeah, exactly. And then it's like, well, yeah, that might kind of be the case in the end, but that that non-contender cute stories, the Los Angeles Lakers. Um, I do think another funny thing is uh, how many true blue contenders are calling a mid-December or late-December game a must win because that's what Anthony Davis said. The Lakers are treating Saturday against the Thunder as play with some effort, play with some energy. We're treating Saturday as a must win. Yeah. That's a, that feels like a little bit of a red flag. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so like I, people will surely point out the game. They got smoked by the Spurs. I think Anthony Davis didn't play right. And then yeah. the one they lost to Minnesota last night, LeBron didn't play. But this is something we talked about early in the season. They've had guys who have been out of the lineup. Like they haven't had Gabe Vincent. Vanderbilt missed the first chunk of the season. But AD and LeBron had been basically entirely healthy. And, you know, maybe they get healthy in other areas, but can they expect the same type of availability from those two guys? It's like, yeah, maybe we have to like bake some of that in moving forward where you got to be able to beat the Spurs still, even if you don't have Anthony Davis. But 
yeah, I don't know. I mean, like they look so good defensively in the in-season tournament. And so much of that was about AD, but like, it was also about LeBron. It was about Cam Reddish. Like they, as a team looked really locked in defensively. And since then it's been like, I don't know. It feels like whenever AD is not on the floor or not available, that defense looks awful. Yeah, good for his defensive player of the year candidacy, or at least runner-up candidacy to Rudy Gobert, not good for the Lakers as a whole. Yeah, I think like he'd probably be on my ballot, at least, if we were doing the yeah. voting today. He's been unbelievable, but they need their defense to be elite because yeah. their offense, as we keep seeing and keep saying, is just not that good. It stinks. So, I don't know. That's, that's a lot of pressure to put on a unit that, yes, LeBron has shown when he dials it all the way up, he can still be an elite defender. But he's also, has he turned 39 yet? Or is he still like about to turn 39 no, in a couple week, of days? I think uh, the 27th, I think it's like the last week yeah. of December, his birthday. For all intents and purposes, he's 39. And like, again, like I do think Reddish has been, he's been a really good story this year. One of the most improved defenders in the league. But I, he, because he gives you so little on offense, I just don't know if you want to be relying on that either. So... It's a precarious tightrope they're walking in terms of the offense-defense balance. And to me, they're hanging on by a thread in this conversation as a contender right now. But I had to include them because they're the IST champs, man. They've yeah. they've won the only title there is to win so far this season. And there's a banner to prove it. Uh, also, I mean, one positive, Austin Reeves has looked a lot better since his move to the bench. Looks a lot more like himself and like the guy that closed out last season. That's big for them going forward. But look, much of this in terms of even having them still hanging on by a thread as contenders, despite what we've seen, is just out of respect from LeBron James and Anthony Davis. Can I actually, now that we're on this subject though, because it there have been reports that they're going to look to flip D'Lo before the deadline this year. So I have to revisit this because I've brought it up to you now a couple of times and you have refused to concede are you still not willing to concede that they should have just gotten Mike Conley at the deadline last year instead of roping in the Wolves and getting D'Lo instead? Again, this the reason you see it as me not conceding. If, if I'm building a basketball team, I want Mike Conley instead of D'Angelo Russell like that. I'm not disputing that. What I continue to stick by is that last season with the late, like, going, trying to win a championship last season and what that specific team needed. I think they needed Delo's shot creation, self-creation ability more than they needed or like that impacted them more than Mike Conley would have last season. Now, if you're going over the long haul, if you're stretching it over years, then yeah, I'd say, give me Mike Conley. But I still think for what that team needed at that specific time, they needed Delo's skill set more. Uh, I just still don't get that point because if this, if they're going to win a championship, it's only because LeBron and AD are healthy and playing at or near the peak of their powers. Okay, they're not. But how many times in the conversation? If that's not the case, of right? Course. But how many times over the last few years have we mentioned the lack of like self creation around those guys and the lack of shooting and all that? Like, I do think. Again, D'Angelo Russell is a very flawed player. I'm not arguing that. But what he does bring to the table, I truly believe that the last season, especially what they were dealing with before they made other moves, like they needed that skill set. I can't, I can't get behind this cash. It's nuts to me. I think like if you, if you're, if you want a point guard to play next to LeBron, Mike Conley fits 
that need so much better than D'Lo does. And I think the Wolves would not be where they are right now if they still had D'Lo instead of Mike Conley. And the difference in terms of just like decision-making and offensive orchestration between him and Conley is immense, not to mention the huge gulf at the defensive end of the floor. So yeah, I think uh, if the Lakers had it to do over again, if you were to give Rob Polinka truth serum, I feel like he would probably be on my side of this and be like, you know what? We probably should have just gotten Conley, but who knows? Um, I did make a uh, a joke on Twitter recently where I said, uh, the year is 2050. 63-year-old Mike Conley is running point for a winning team in the NBA. Because I like, again, it, it, I, I love Mike Conley. So, okay. the Yeah, that, that's it, right? For teams yeah. that we had? That's it. Um, I'll just I did it. also make this list of like teams that I considered in the West. And... Again, I tried to rank them in order of believability. So I had the Warriors at the top of that list for as much as they've struggled this year. Just championship equity, man. I have to believe in their ability to get back up to that level more so than I believe in it for like the Pelicans and the Kings, who are the teams that I had next on this list, followed by Dallas. Those are the the teams that I would kind of have on the fringes of that conversation, but that I didn't believe in enough to actually put them in. Did you any thoughts on any of those teams before we sign off here? I mean, yeah, like championship championship equity for the Warriors, but I I don't really buy them as a contender, even on a fringe level. And I, I don't buy any team outside of the ten we talked about. But what I will add is that, like, whether you include some of those other fringy teams or not, even if you're just going with like the ten, nine or ten teams we talked about today, minimum one to two of them is not even making the second round, is not getting past the first round. Some of them might not even, based on how things go, whether the play like might not even make the playoffs, for God's sakes. It's just a reminder that there are a lot of teams, like good teams with high stakes, you know, that are going to not just fall short of the ultimate goal, fall far short of the ultimate goal because that's how tough the NBA is, especially in this unprecedented era of parity. And so just a reminder, whether you're a fan, a team executive for maybe, I don't know why team executive would be listening. Actually, they should listen to this. We have better trade ideas than them sometimes. But (laughs) whether you're a fan, a NBA player, a team executive, God knows they're all listening to Pound the Rock. It is a reminder that like most even good teams are going to fall far short of the ultimate goal. Okay, quick, quick note on the Pelicans. All right. It, does any part of you believe, again, this is another one of these teams where we just have to have all these qualifiers, like these ifs, right? But if they can stay healthy, do you believe that they have that kind of upside where, you know, at least maybe they could find themselves in the conference finals? You know, like, to me, it's just seeing what they look like with Trey Murphy back and how big of a difference he makes. I mean, we said when he was about to come back, like, this guy's going to make a huge difference for this team. Like, they really need three-point volume. They really need spacing. And he's one of these guys who, not only does he space the floor out to the three-point line, but he spaces the floor out, like, five feet beyond the three-point line because of his range. And now he's really filling out his game, I feel like, as a guy who can pump and go, who's, like, a pretty effective driver. I'm going to see quickly right here. They are... They're plus 18.5 for 100 possessions with him on the floor so far. And he started last night, I think. He was great last night, dude. He was incredible. Um, I think that was his first start of the season. And that was probably only because Zion didn't play. But at some point, 
like with Zion back, he's got to be starting, right? Yeah. And whether that means Herb going to the bench, I just feel like he needs to be part of that starting unit because like they need his shooting so, so badly. Agreed. Love Trey. Think this team could be good. Don't buy them as a contender. Maybe, maybe if Zion's combined weight and body fat percentage is stays below 295. Then maybe, maybe I can get there. Um, and then, yeah, the, as I mentioned, the Kings and the Mavs were the other teams that I had in this, like, teams that I gave token consideration to kind of group who they've been good so far this season, but mainly for defensive reasons, I'm not fully sold on either of them as contenders. So there's an hour and a half on the contenders of the league. Another indication of how deep and balanced the league is right now that we have come up with nine or in your case, 10 teams that we feel like have a claim to, you know, the mantle of a contender, a team that could conceivably win the championship heading into a little bit of a break here, week off for both of us coming back on the other side in 2024. That's what we'll leave you with. And we'll also leave you with a fan shout out before we go. What do you got for me, Cash? Yeah, this week's fan shout out goes out to Cameron Roll Cam, who I met actually in section 310 at Scotiabank Arena. Uh, one of the games where, despite you know having a media pass, I actually sat with my dad, who still has season split season seats with my uncle. Uh, so I think it's one of only two games I've actually sat in uh, fan seats this year for the Raps rather than uh, media row. But anyway, yeah, Cameron recognized me from uh, the Score YouTube series and ended up telling me like you know everything we do at the Score. So shout out to Cameron. Shout out to Cameron. Shout out to all our listeners. Thank you for riding with us in 2023. Last episode of the year. It's been uh, it's been an interesting one. And here's to 2024 being that much more interesting. Uh, I'm not going to do the whole where to reach us if you want a shout out thing because it's just this episode's gotten way too long. But I'm sure most of you have heard the spiel and know already how you can find us if you want to get a shout out. But uh, I'll again, just leave you by saying thank you. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas to those who celebrate an early happy new year. And we'll talk to y'all in 2024 for Joseph Cacharo. I'm Joe Wolfarm. Pound the rock. Pound the rock.